We are just one week away from March Madness, when everyone becomes a basketball fan. On average, 70 million people will fill out a bracket, whether they have ever watched a college game or not. Office pools, friends' pools, online pools, everyone coming together wondering who will win not only the NCAA tournament, but the fierce and friendly bracket competition. Welcome to episode 135 of This Shit Works, a podcast dedicated to all things networking, relationship building, and business development. I'm your host, Julie Brown, professional speaker, author, and networking coach. And today, I am joined by Alan Stein, Jr., author of Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best, to discuss and share secrets he learned from working with high-performance basketball players for more than 15 years. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. My guest today believes that the tools required for success are available to everyone. But not everyone understands the importance of fundamentals, of establishing, tweaking, and repeating positive habits. Allen spent 15 years observing how the best basketball players in the world became the best. And he is here to deliver practical, actionable lessons that he says can be implemented immediately. Approaches that elite athletes use that we too can implement to perform at a world-class level. He's no joke either. His previous clients include American Express, Pepsi, Starbucks, Charles Schwab, and Penn State Football. Alan and I met in Nashville back in July, and I have been eagerly awaiting this conversation ever since. So, without further ado, let's get started. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's so great to be with you. I'm excited for a fun conversation. Do you remember how hot it was in Nashville in July? Yeah, it was super hot. Thankfully, we didn't really have to leave the premises because that Gaylord is so big. It's like a city within a city. So I don't think I ever stepped outside until it was time for my flight home. Mm. Well, I went running outside every morning, which was stupid, but I went out at five o'clock in the morning. So it wasn't as bad. But let me just tell you, Nashville in July is like swamp ass city. <laughs> All right. So as I said in the intro, you spent 15 years working with elite athletes, basketball um, athletes. How did you get into that? Like, what were you doing for 15 years? <laughs> so I think what's important for context is basketball was my first love. And I vividly remember falling in love with the game at five years old when my parents signed me up for my first recreation basketball team. And here four decades later, basketball is still a major love and a major passion of mine. So I'm First and foremost, incredibly grateful that I've been able to build a living and an extraordinary life around the game that I love so much. And mm -hmm. I was able to play up through the university level. I played at Elon University, a small school in North Carolina. And when I graduated in the late 90s, I wanted to continue to pursue something that had to do with the game of basketball. And while I was in college, I started to develop an equal love for what we now call performance training. Uh, strength, conditioning, fitness, mindset, nutrition. So when I graduated, I thought, what could be better than combining my original love of basketball with this newfound love of performance training? And I became a basketball performance coach. And oh. I did that for just over 15 years, had an opportunity to work with some really elite players and really elite coaches, and just learned so many 
principles and strategies and lessons from them. And then in 2017, when I decided to leave the training space and pursue a corporate keynoting space, I thought, what could be better than teaching all of the lessons that I had learned from the game and show folks how to apply those to their lives and their businesses? Very interesting. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to work with elite athletes. I mean, I'm just saying from a sense of, is it intimidating? Were you intimidated every day being around that sort of level of excellence? Initially, yes. Initially, there was certainly an equal combination of an intimidation factor and a little bit of an imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. you know, because I I was saying to myself, well, I didn't play basketball on a super high level. And here I am having an opportunity to coach guys that are playing at the highest level possible. Thankfully, I was able to work through that rather quickly because I came to the conclusion that that at their core, they are human beings just mm-hmm. like you and I. Now, they happen to be really good at a craft, but they have feelings, they have emotions just like we do. And I'm such a relationship-driven guy that I learned very quickly that if I could earn their trust and respect, show them that I had the competence to teach them something that would allow them to get even better, mm-hmm. then we'd have a, a really enjoyable experience and we'd have a great relationship. So I was able to work through the imposter syndrome and intimidation rather quickly and realize, hey, this is just about relationships and mm-hmm. uh, earning trust and respect. Your book is broken down into pretty much three parts. You've got the player, the coach, and then the team. Why did you break it down into those three? And we'll go into those three parts, but why did you break it down that way into those three parts? I use that language very intentionally because of my sports and background, uh, my background in sports rather. But I've learned that on some level, all of us at different stages in our lives, we are the quote unquote player where this could be the employee, this could be the member of a family, member of a church. At some point, we are also the coach you know, whether we are a manager or a supervisor or a CEO, whether we're the parent uh, or spouse in a nuclear family, like we, we're expected to lead and to coach at some point. And then we're all a part of teams. Once again, I look at the family as a team, the nuclear family as a team unit. Most people listening are a part of some type of team vocationally, whether they mm-hmm. work for a big organization or they're the head of that organization and they're hiring others. But we, we kind of toggle in and out of those three states throughout our lives. And, and I think to not only perform at a high level, but to also have a high level of fulfillment, we need to get good in each of those roles. We mm. have to learn how to be a good team player. We have to learn how to coach and we have to learn how to get along with others and play nicely in the sandbox. So uh, I just wanted to provide a framework for how we could do each of those. It's funny, as you said that, when I was thinking about it from a business standpoint, I'm like, oh, okay. So where does the solopreneur fit into that? Because now I'm like, okay, well, I'm the player. I'm the coach and I'm the team. Like I am, when you work for yourself and you're the only person, like that's a lot of roles to take on. Oh, it most certainly is. And and I very much identify as a solopreneur, but even as a solopreneur, as a keynote speaker and author, I still have a small team. You know, I have my agent and manager. I have my brother who handles all of my digital needs. I have an admin assistant. So I still have a, a small core team that helps. But even if I did everything on my own, I have three children. So as mm. you know, maybe in my vocation, I'm playing all three roles myself. But as soon as I step out of that in my personal life, now I'm playing in these different roles. And right. you know, there are very few people, at least it's been my experience, that are a complete solopreneur and they stay that way for the longevity of their entire career. At yeah. some point, we are always a part of something bigger than ourselves. And we're either having to lead others 
or we have to have the skill of being able to be led by others, which I think is an, an important skill in and of itself. So that's what I'm going to get into. So I'm going to break down the three parts of your book are player, coach, and then team. And then within each of those sections, you have five main factors to each section. So I want to list the five main factors of each section. And then I want you to tell me what you think is the biggest struggle out of those factors. So for the player, you said the player's five main factors are self-awareness, passion, discipline. You just said it, coachability and confidence. In your opinion, what is the one of those five factors that people struggle with the most? This is almost like asking me which of my children I love the most, <laughs> which as any parent will tell you, it will depend on the day. Yep. I was the middle child of three. <laughs> so you have three. I was the middle child of three. I think my mother, I was her least favorite until I was an adult. Ah. And then as an adult, I won't tell my sisters this, but they don't listen to my podcast anyways. <laughs> I am the favorite as the adult. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I don't see how it could be any other way. I'm going to answer it in a slightly different way. I'm going to say, I believe self-awareness is the most important of the five, and it's the foundation to which the other four are built. But I'm going to say, I mean, it really depends on the person. I know plenty of folks that struggle with discipline and they struggle with confidence. And those two things are interrelated. If you happen mm. to struggle with discipline, you most likely also struggle with confidence. Yeah. For myself, I would say discipline's probably, oh, it, that's hard because there are so many factors of my life why I'm so disciplined, where it's like I wake up every day at 5.15, I go for my run, I go for my bike ride, like I like do that. And then I would say I'm done with working out by seven o'clock in the morning and then my discipline starts to wane throughout the rest of the day. I'm not as disciplined in other parts of my life as I am like right when I get up in the morning. And I'm definitely not as disciplined in business as I should be. Is discipline something that can be learned? Absolutely. And I love that you brought up the fact that discipline is oftentimes compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. I'm actually very similar to you in regards to the fact that for me, my physical health, my working out, my eating clean, my getting sleep, I've been incredibly disciplined in those areas my entire life. I mean, mm -hmm. because I've always identified with being an athlete and those things go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. But in the past, and I, I choose my words very carefully, but in the past, I haven't always made very disciplined financial decisions. Mm -hmm. I didn't exercise the same discipline that I'm capable of in certain areas. Now, thankfully, over the last few years, with the help of a coach, a financial coach, I've been able to course correct and start making more disciplined mm. decisions. But the most important part for folks to realize is that discipline is not something that's genetically preset like eye color or height. Mm -hmm. It's not either I am disciplined or I'm not. That's just a story that people tell themselves. Because I have people all the time that say, you know, Alan, I wish I was more disciplined. And I said, well, good news is you can be with the very next decision you have to make in your day you can choose to make a more disciplined decision. And I'm sure people say that to you, you know, oh, Julie, I wish that I could get up early in the morning and go for a run. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you can, you're choosing not to, and yes. that's okay. There's no judgment, but you're capable of that. And one thing that I think we have an issue with in our society is I personally think motivation is over-indexed and over-glorified where discipline is actually under-indexed and, and we need to talk more about that. Yeah, it's interesting. So two things I want to, 
piggyback on what you just said. The first one to the listeners is Alan is not kidding about eating clean because he gave me all of his drink tickets when we were in Nashville. (laughs) And I was like, Alan, you're going to have your drink tickets. He was like, no, I don't really drink. I was like, I do. (laughs) Again, it was like five o'clock. Discipline was in the shitter by that point. (laughs) Still got up and went running at five o'clock the next morning. But and the second one is societally like this whole motivation thing. And I'm sure you get asked all the time. People say, oh, are you a motivational speaker? I'm like, no, I'm a get shit done speaker. Motivation is a flash in the pan. Like if I'm motivated and I don't have any tools, if you haven't given me any tools along with that motivation, like what am I going to do with it? And so I think we put too much emphasis on being motivated and not enough emphasis on what are the actionable steps. Absolutely. And that's where discipline comes in. So I would say, generally speaking, I probably work out four times a week. So mm-hmm. if we look at, you know, 50 weeks, uh, you round it down to 50 weeks in a year, I work out 200 times a year. Mm-hmm. If you were to ask me or put me on a lie detector test and ask me how many times I was motivated to work out, the answer is probably about 25%. About yeah. 50 of those workouts, I'm like, yes, I'm yeah, excited. I'm ready to get after it. The other 150 yeah. I'm not necessarily motivated to get up and work out or wake up and bundle up and go out for a run when it's 30 degrees, Um, but I do it because of discipline and I've Mm -hmm. built that muscle and I've intentionally tell myself the narrative that I am a disciplined person. I identify as an athlete. So I am the type of person that works out even if he doesn't feel like it, Mm -hmm. even if it's not convenient. And even when I don't want to, and to me, that's the real test of discipline is understanding A good friend of mine, Ben Newman, who's a mental performance coach, uses this phrase that he got from Nick Saban with Alabama football, and that's standard over feelings, that if you really want to be a pro in any area of your life, you live to a standard, you live to your core values, you don't make decisions based on your feelings and the ebb and flow and roller coaster of emotions. Mm -hmm. So if I only worked out when I felt like working out, I would work out 50 times a year. But instead, because I have discipline and I identify with someone who works out as part of their life, now I work out 200 times per year. So to me, it's all about discipline. And we, we have an opportunity, every decision we make in our life, we have an opportunity to make a more disciplined decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think about the next meal that you're going to eat. There's always options. And more times than not, I say 80 to 85% of the time, I intentionally try to make the more disciplined decision. When it comes mm-hmm. to my eating, the other 10 to 15%, I let myself have some freedom and some leniency and I just mm-hmm. eat what I want to eat. And I'm okay with that, but I'm in complete control of that entire process. And that comes down to discipline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, discipline starts waning for me around seven o'clock. <laughs> but you know what? You have the self-awareness to know that. I do. That is so important. And I assume that you do this, which is the reason you're so successful and such a high performer. You figured out a way to structure your day so yeah. that you have to make your most disciplined decisions earlier mm-hmm. in the day because that's when you need them. And then by seven o'clock at night, once you you admit that that willpower has gone down, yep. you're okay with that. And that. Right. To me, it's having the awareness. The folks that don't know that about themselves are the ones who are likely going to start making really poor decisions. Yeah. So let's go on to the coach. So you say the five main factors for the coach are vision, culture, servant, character, and empowerment. So which of these do you think coaches or team leaders struggle with the most? What coaches, business leaders, managers, principals, like what is the one people struggle with the most and how can we work on that? 
I'm going to go with, with servanthood. And the reason I'm saying that is as human beings, I do believe we're genetically encoded to be somewhat selfish. You yeah. know, that we've admitted we have children. I've got three kids. And when I remember when they were really little toddler age, they see the world through such a limited view that mm -hmm. everything is, that's mine. Yes. No, like everything yeah. is about self-preservation. I need food. I need, And we need that for survival when we're really little. So I think we've been wired to look out for ourselves as we get older. And especially mm -hmm. if we want to be in a position of leadership, we have to learn how to be of service to others. We have to learn the the what I consider the transformational mantra of leadership, which is, it's not about me. It's about you. I mean, mm -hmm. I know you know this as a keynote speaker. When we're on stage, it's not about us. It's about the audience. It's yeah. about their challenges, their pain points. What do they need to hear? How can I add the most value to their lives? Yeah. And I think that's what leaders need to do. So if you can go, if you can look through the lens of it's not about me, mm -hmm. it's about you. And this doesn't mean that you you devalue yourself or you don't prioritize self-care or that your dreams aren't important. It means you place equal emphasis on the dreams and goals of those that you serve. And, mm -hmm. you know, as a basketball coach, if you understand that your number one objective is to get the maximum out of each player on your team, to help them develop, to become the best player they're capable of, and then create the type of culture where everybody plays well together, that's ultimately how you're successful. And it's no different in business. Can you hear my dog sneezing up a storm in the background? Oh, no, I can't. Oh, that's oh okay. Hilarious. Is that coming through? Oh, my gosh. She just lost it and was like sneezing. Is she allergic, she allergic to what I'm saying? I hope she's yeah, not allergic she's like, to what I'm saying. Fuck that servanthood shit. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's a treasure. She's That's a awesome. treasure. Okay, so let's move on to team. A lot of us work in team environments, especially obviously in business. We work on teams. So yep. the five main factors of the team are unselfishness, role clarity, communication, cohesion, and the first step. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say... I'm going to say the biggest struggle is role clarity. Oh, perfect. That is exactly what I was thinking. So we're, we're in complete alignment. So from a role clarity standpoint, and the reason this one is challenging is in order for a team to be successful, your role on the team might not be what you want it to be, but it's what we need it to be for us to be successful. Mm -hmm. So a, a good coach or a good leader will be able to say, okay, Julie has these amazing strengths. These are her talents. These are her gifts. Here's how we use these talents and gifts for the betterment of the group. You know, so which means everyone on the team has to know their role, has to embrace their role, and then has to do everything in their power to star in their role to the best of their ability. But then you have to get everyone else on the team to value, yeah. respect, and appreciate each person's role. And sometimes, especially in larger companies that, that are somewhat divided in silos, you know, we've got the mm -hmm. sales team over here, we've got yeah. research development, we've got marketing, we've got the leadership team. What often happens is because we do have this kind of self-serving bias, it's easy to think that your contribution or your department's contribution is more important than somebody else's, when in fact, that's not true. Yeah. Uh, I use the analogy of a jigsaw puzzle. You know, I, I don't do a whole lot of puzzles anymore, but my kids were younger on a rainy oh, yeah. day with puzzles. Oh, yeah. Yep. And, we still do them at the ski house when it's like a day you can't ski, just break out a puzzle. Uh, <laughs> love that. Anything that will untether from electronics and, and yep. go back to the old school, I'm a fan of. But when you think of a jigsaw puzzle, every single piece is a slightly different shape, a slightly different color. 
but you need every single one of them to finish the final picture. Mm -hmm. If any one of those pieces is missing or a chunk of them are missing, the picture's incomplete. So you can't really say that one piece of a jigsaw puzzle is more important than another because you need them all. And it's the same thing with a team. You know, every single person's role is important. Certainly the role of the CEO is going to be different than the role of saying, you know, one of the building service workers, mm-hmm. they're, they're going to be different roles, but both roles are important and both right. need to have mutual respect and appreciation for what the mm-hmm. other person does. And when everyone is committed to fulfilling their role to the best of their ability, and they wake up saying, how can I make a maximum contribution to the greater good and the greater, you know, the team, that's when you have a really extraordinary special organization. Tell me what the first step is, because you ended with that and I was intrigued by it. The first step. What is well, that? Really, the first step is this, this holistic understanding of the fact that we're going to be in and out of these different frameworks. We're going to be players, we're going to be coaches, and we're going to be on different teams. And then having an understanding of what each of those means and being able, because they're not mutually exclusive. If you are, let's say, a middle manager at a mid-sized company, you are a coach because you're coaching those that report directly to you. But you're also a player because you're a part of this bigger organization and you report to someone else. So you're a part of a team, you're a coach, and you're a player. And it's this understanding that we're going to jockey in and out of all of those things. So there's a quote in the beginning of your book, and I cannot remember who you attributed it to, but the quote was, you get strong going uphill. And as a person who I've run the Boston Marathon a number of times, which for the first 22 miles or 20 miles is slightly downhill. You don't notice it because the grade is pretty minimal. But after 20 miles of running slightly downhill, your quads are completely dead. And it made me think like, yes, we all know that we build character in the hard times and that we grow through the hard times. But I don't think there's actually enough written about sometimes the easy times you take your eye off of things or you don't understand what's happening to your body when things are seemingly good. So I thought it's neither here nor there, but I was like, everybody talks about how hard it is to go uphill, but I don't know, 20 miles of going downhill is pretty fucking hard too. Oh yeah. Well, I, I, I'm a novice runner compared to you, but yeah, there's actual massive difficulty in running downhill, especially a steep downhill. I yeah. mean, it wreaks havoc on your, your knees and your back, but you bring up an excellent point. To me, the biggest downside of the going downhill, if you'll say, and I did that in air quotes for your audio listeners, is it often creates complacency. It often creates this sense that I can just put on the cruise control, like this marathon is going to be a breeze because right now it doesn't feel bad. And then at mile 20, when you said it shifts and you start going uphill, now you're, you know, you've got the the cold bucket of ice water on your head. It's like, Mm -hmm. wait a second. Whoa, this is much harder than I thought. So for me, When things are going fluid in my life, I feel like I'm in the zone. I'm banging away on all cylinders. I keep myself very humble and grounded to know, first of all, this can end at any moment. So don't get too comfortable. Two, be grateful and appreciative and thankful that things are fluid right now, but don't click on that complacency button and just realize that you got to keep working because things are, they're not going to always be this fluid and this easy. And that also helps temper when things are hard, you know? lens. I don't allow myself to get super duper high when things are great. Yeah. But I also don't allow myself to get super duper low when things are really adverse. 
I choose to stay kind of in the middle ground. And, mm-hmm. and for me, that takes some of the volatility out. Now, I allow myself to celebrate when something goes well. Yeah. And I allow myself to be a little down in the dumps when things are tough, but I don't play to the super duper extremes and I don't stay in either space very long because I realize it's all temporary. Challenges are temporary, but so are celebrations. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm not very good at celebrating. I'm very good at, okay, next. Like that's, and I've been told that by multiple coaches that I'm supposed to look at my successes like a staircase. Like you don't just go like this. Like again, for the listeners, straight up in an arrow, like straight, you're supposed to go up on the riser and sit in your success for a little while before you take on something new, but not me. I'm like, okay, that was great. Wrote the book. Great. Started the podcast. Great. Okay. Did that. Great. My problem is I don't look at things that are good long enough. So there's a downside to that too. But that's nice that you have that self-awareness. And that again, (laughs) that is something that you can choose to change the next time you have something to celebrate. Yeah. And it doesn't mean, you know, every time you have a small victory that you take a week off from work and you go to the beach. Right. It could mean just for one evening, I'm going to be proud of what I did. You know, one of the things I learned in team dynamics, especially from a coaching standpoint, is that which gets praised gets repeated. If you Mm -hmm. see someone on your team doing something well, or as parents, we see our children doing something well, if you acknowledge it and you praise it, you're going to most likely see that behavior again. So Mm -hmm. what I'd say is we're the same when we talk to ourselves. If you can learn to just take a a few moments to celebrate the successes you have, in essence, you're praising yourself and you will unconsciously wire yourself to do more of that. Mm -hmm. You'll say, this feels good when I have a a small victory. I want to do more of that. So I've gotten better because in the past, I've been very wired similarly to you. It's like, all right, that was great. Now what? And I found myself perpetually on this hedonic treadmill of it was always what's next. It's like, well, what's the point of accomplishing something if I'm not going to enjoy it at least for a couple of moments? Yeah. If I land a big speaking engagement or something goes really well, I take a few moments to enjoy it, have a little bit of pride. And -hmm. then once that dissipates, then say, okay, now what's next? Because I can't live off of this forever. Right. If if I'm still talking about this speaking engagement a year from now, boy, (laughs) I haven't done very much in the past year. Right. But I think at least for a 24-hour window, it's more than okay. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the importance of the basics and all of the things that you said, like all the most elite athletes, they have repeatable actions, but it's the basics. It's the foundations. So how can someone actually determine if they're not good at the basics? Like if I'm not getting like the most rudimentary things that I'm supposed to be doing every day, if I'm not doing those, like how can we, again, that's a self-awareness thing, but like, how can we make that observation that, okay, I actually have to go back here and work on some things. Well, the very first step is getting crystal clear on what the basics are. And that's Mm -hmm. not always as obvious as one would think. I'm a huge believer that awareness is always the first step because you'll never fix something you're unaware of. You'll never improve something you're oblivious to. So first is pick the domain that you'd like to make an improvement. And this doesn't matter if you want a more fulfilling marriage, or you want to be a better high performer in sport, or you want to to increase your gross revenue as an entrepreneur, you have to say, all right, what's the area I'm trying to improve? And then say, all right, what are the basic building blocks of this? You know, if someone wants to become a better podcast host, for example, ask yourself, what are the four or five fundamentals that go into being a really good podcast host? 
And once you get clarity on those, then ask yourself, what am I doing to improve these skill sets? Like, what am I doing to practice? You know, Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer that in really any interpersonal relationship, whether it's a podcast host, whether it's with your children, your spouse, or part of a team, that the ability to be a good active listener will heighten your ability to do any of those things. So I think listening is a skill with very high utility. And I also believe it's a fundamental. If you want to improve your marriage immediately, become a better listener. You Mm. want to become a more effective parent immediately, become a better listener. I mean, you could fill in the blank. So -hmm. then you have to say, all right, what am I doing to practice the skill of active listening? And you're a brilliant listener. I can tell by our interaction here on Zoom. So it's clearly something that you've practiced, but we have to have high discernment and say, okay, how do I become a better listener? What are some things that I can do? And then work those into your daily and weekly flow so that you're working on improving the skills. And that's really where the fundamentals come in. And it's not skipping steps. As soon as someone says, you know, I don't really need to be a good listener because I pretty much know everything. I mean, my goodness, that is the death of of any high performer. Right. I heard you once say, or I read it in your book, I know the steps we need to take. We know what we're supposed to be doing to be high performance or to get be getting better at what we do. We just don't do it. So where's the bridge on knowing and doing? Yeah, that is, I'm so glad you went in that direction. That's what we call a performance gap. And we all have them. And many times, and you and I started the conversation with this, our performance gaps can be somewhat compartmentalized. You and I happen to be examples of people that have relatively small performance gaps when it comes to exercise. We know Mm -hmm. what we should do to keep our bodies healthy and we tend to do it fairly often. So that doesn't seem to be a problem for either one of us. But as I mentioned earlier in the spirit of full transparency, I had some major performance gaps in financial decisions that I was making. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't from lack of knowledge. I knew that some of the things I was doing was most likely not in my best interest, especially Mm -hmm. long-term, but I was still doing them. And that's no different than someone that knows Eating a bag of Doritos is probably not the best thing I can eat for my health, but they're really good. And it's what I feel like eating in the moment. So we all have these different performance gaps. And if we can learn to start narrowing the gap, start doing the things that we know we should do, that's what the very first step is to improving performance. So that's easy for an individual to do. I can say, this is where I know that I'm, I have a performance gap. How are those identified on teams? You need to create a culture, a safe and inclusive culture where folks feel that they can be honest, that they can give and receive feedback openly, and that they can share those things. You know, I'm a huge believer that accountability is a gift. You know, accountability, holding someone accountable is something you do for them. It's not something you do to them. So if you've created the type of culture where you personally feel comfortable saying, you know, hey, I I don't feel like we're doing this very well as a group. Mm -hmm. That type of open dialogue and and honest communication is the first step. You know, if you happen to have someone that leads with kind of an iron fist, if you have someone that isn't very open to hearing any of that, then you're going to close that off. And and I always believe in fostering the type of environment where people want to share that and say, hey, here's some things that we collectively are doing really well, but here's a few areas where I think we need to improve. And I find it, especially with leaders to speak as far as we and us mm-hmm. and not you and me. Like, like talk about it as a team and say, here are some areas that we need to improve in 2023 because we have room for growth over what we did in 2022. So to me, it's all about creating an environment and a culture where f- people feel safe and valued and respected enough to share the performance gaps that they observe. That seems to me like a tall feat to create that environment. 
Do you work with companies to make that create that environment? Because it seems to me that they, more often than not, 95% of the teams, I would say, they would say that culture doesn't exist and the ability to completely open and have that open dialogue. Yes, that is pivotal to my work. And that is one of the hardest things for groups to do. And that's why building world-class organizations and elite championship teams is not easy. You know, I mean, that is why at the end of every sports season, there's only one champion. Everybody else is not, I mean, they might've had a great season and they might've done the best they were capable of, Mm -hmm. but there's only one. So yeah, that is the hardest part. It requires that we put both individual and collective egos to the side to say that, hey, if, if Julie's offering me this feedback right now, she's doing it because she cares. She's mm-hmm. doing it because she cares about our group and our team. This is not mm-hmm. a personal attack on me. This is not, you know, like I said, holding someone accountable is a gift. And that's the very first thing I do is I try to reframe that and mm-hmm. say, when someone offers you feedback, the very first thing you should do is, is thank them. And, and, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about within the confines of a team is saying, you know, Julie, I really appreciate the fact that you care enough about our group that you are willing to have an uncomfortable conversation and bring this up. Yeah. Like, man, that took courage. And I appreciate that. See, mm-hmm. the human default, because we're trying to protect our egos at all time, is mm-hmm. to deflect or blame or complain or make an excuse. Or, you know, as soon as you offer this feedback, I immediately try and shut it down and give yeah. you 10 reasons why what you just said isn't valid. But then there's no growth. There's no improvement. So right. um, being able to take a deep breath and say, all right, let's take a look at this. And it doesn't necessarily mean we agree. You might bring up the fact that you think this is one of our organizational performance gaps. I may see it differently, but at least now we can have some open and honest dialogue and I can lean in with curiosity and fascination and say, wow, I never thought about it like that. Can you expand on that? I'd love to learn more why you think this is what's holding us back. Mm -hmm. And then if you're open to it, I'd love to share what I think is holding us back. And now we've created this really rich and fruitful dialogue. That's how teams get better. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can see it's obvious why the biggest companies are hiring you to talk to their teams. Oh, thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. How can the listeners, if they're interested in learning more about, well, number one, learning more about you, how you work with companies, or maybe where they can see you speak, where's the best way for them to get that information? So my website, allensteinjr.com is kind of the hub of everything that I have going on, but that definitely highlights everything that I do from a speaking standpoint. I have a supplemental site, strongerteam.com, that has info on my podcast, my books, some of the other peripheral supportive reinforcement tools. And then I'm very easily found and very accessible on social media, just at Alan Stein Jr. on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Yeah. I take a tremendous amount of pride in responding to DMs. So that's one of the easiest ways to get me. If, if someone wants to ask a question about what you and I chatted about, mm-hmm. or they want to share something, or they're interested in maybe getting some help. Just shoot me a DM on Instagram or on LinkedIn, and I'm very good about getting back to folks. And then, of course, if they're interested in either of my books, Raise Your Game or Sustain Your Game, those are easily found on Amazon or Audible or wherever you like to get books and audiobooks. Excellent. I'll put that all in the show notes. Beautiful. There's so much more to talk about, but we are out of time. I know. Maybe we'll just have to have you come back. (laughs) I would love that. This has been a real treat. Yeah, hopefully we can make it an annual thing. an influence every year. That was so much fun. Yeah. All right. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Okay. Breaking it down to my biggest takeaways, the notes I scribbled, is when Alan said that in society, motivation is over-indexed and over-glorified. 
while discipline is actually under-indexed. When people ask me if I'm a motivational speaker, I always say no, because motivation is fleeting. It's a flash in the pan. It's tools and discipline that are going to change your career and your life. That's what I offer when I give speeches, tools, and how to use them. Like one of my favorite Peloton instructors, Dennis Morton, always says, I provide suggestions, you make decisions. It's all about the decisions we make day in and day out. It's getting good at and then repeating the basics and good decisions and not getting bored with them that will change our lives. Another thing that Alan said was standards over feelings. If you really want to be a pro in any area of your life, you have to live to a standard that will allow you to do that. You have to live to your core values. You don't make decisions based on your feelings because feelings ebb and flow and can be a roller coaster of emotions. We have to make decisions based off of your standards and your values because those will always be the same. One last thing that Alan said was that which gets praised gets repeated. Now, How often do you take a moment to give yourself the credit or praise you deserve? Probably, like me, not nearly enough. So, could you start baking into your schedule times to give yourself praise or do something nice for yourself? Meaning, when you accomplish something big, take a moment to acknowledge it and then give yourself a reward, whatever that reward is. And maybe, maybe your reward is a refreshing cocktail. So, on to the drink of the week, which, since this was a basketball-themed episode, is appropriately named the Alley-Oop. Now, something you may not know about me was that in high school, I was a basketball cheerleader. Yep, I was also a football cheerleader and a hockey cheerleader as well. But when I was a basketball cheerleader, one of our cheers was this cheer that went Alley-Oop through the hoop. That's me clapping. That's me, my cheerleader clap. Isn't it amazing that You can remember shit like that 30 years later. Anyways, here's what you're going to need. All right. One and a half ounces of your favorite rye whiskey, a half ounce of lemon juice, quarter ounce of ginger syrup, one teaspoon of simple syrup, three-fourths ounce of sparkling water, a couple of raspberries, and some mint leaves. Add the raspberries and the mint leaves to a shaker and muddle together. Like, that's just smashing the shit out of it. Next, add ice along with the whiskey, lemon juice, ginger syrup, and simple syrup. Shake it, 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 shake it. Then add the sparkling water to all of that. And then strain into a coupe or a punch glass and serve and enjoy. All right, friends, that's all for this week. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. Also, please remember to share the podcast to help it reach a larger audience. If you want more Julie Brown, you can find my book, This Shit Works, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. You can find me on LinkedIn. There'll be a link to that as well. Just let me know where you found me when you reach out. I'm Brown underscore BD on Instagram, or you can just pop on over to my website, juliebrownbd.com. And until next week, cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works.